Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin by thanking Roger M. and David B., who recently made donations to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. Also, I'd like to thank Allison R., Sergey P., and Dan N., who became my 5th, 6th, and 7th patrons of my new writing project, which you can find more about at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Now, in the comments back on podcast number 536, Bert T. mentioned the pops and clicks in the recent Terrence McKenna recordings. And he's correct. They are somewhat bothersome. So I went ahead and bought a new machine to digitize today's tape. Guess what? The pops are still there. So either both of these digitizing machines are no good, or the microphone that Terrence used from Podcast 534 onward had a problem uh, whenever his recording volume went too high. Either way, uh, I'm sorry about the slight distortion. Hopefully it doesn't completely ruin the experience of these Terrence McKenna talks for you. Now, today's program, I just discovered, begins with the final 14 minutes of the talk that we last heard from Terrence in Podcast 538. I was going to insert a little comment at the break to uh, signify the beginning of today's talk, but, well, it's really quite clear, and so I'll leave it up to you to figure out that when, uh, well, after about 14 minutes, you hear Terrence say, well, why don't we knock off then? When you hear that, I'm sure you're going to realize there's still another hour of the Bard McKenna yet to come. Now, the main part of this talk was recorded on August 11th, 1998, which happened to be my 56th birthday and was only 12 days after he gave the Valley of Novelty workshop that I podcast beginning with number 27 back in February of 2006. And at that conference, uh, in my first conversation with Terrence, he told me that I thought I should come to the Entheobotany conference being held in Palenque the following January. I still remember his little grin when he added, That conference has been known to change people's lives. And it uh, most certainly did for me. It wasn't uh, Terence's presence at the conference that changed my life, however. As you already know, well, that's where I met the woman to whom I'm now married. And a few months after that conference in Palenque, I took a leave of absence from my job in Florida and moved out here to the coast. Mary C. and I were married late that same year. I guess that uh, eventually I'll have to let my old company know that I want to make that temporary leave of absence a permanent one. <laughs> but uh, they've probably figured that out by now. Anyway, enough of my babbling. Let's get back to the Esalen Institute in Big Sur on an August evening in 1998 and learn a little more about what was on the mind of McKenna. Until very recently... You know, as recently as 1910 or so, uh, Rudolf Otto, who was a great um, philosopher of religious experience, he defined God as the holy and totally other. Well, to somebody raised on tabloid newspapers in 50s science fiction, the holy, totally other 
sounds much more like invaders from the rim mm -hmm. than anything associated uh, with the Judeo-Christian tradition. Somehow in the same way that we have Disney-fied the elves, we've actually Disney-fied God too. And, and so the, you know, the old-fashioned phrase, God-fearing, it has a very uh, anachronistic ring. We modern people don't fear God. We deconstruct God. We may seek God as spiritual counselor and friend if we're, you know, God positive people. If we're God negative people, we deny the very phenomenon. But very, f but if you spoke of being God-fearing, some people I think would think you must be Amish or Mennonite or something. It's such an old-fashioned emotion. Uh, the alien that comes through uh, the psychedelic experience is terrifying in its alienness, in and of itself. It isn't that it does anything terrifying or that it promises a threat. It's simply that its existence inspires an awe which mutates into terror because it so um, turns on end all cultural values. In a way, you could almost say that, that culture is a defense against the sense of this thing, the holy and totally other, which, which is there. And when culture fails, when culture has nothing more to say to you, such as when you're on your deathbed and, you know, what's being sold down at the market no longer has any interest for you and what's on TV seems irrelevant because you're going to die in the next hour. In other words, once you move beyond cultural values, then this terror, this awesome thing waits. It also attends birth, you know, in, but only momentarily because as soon as, soon as it's determined that you're alive, basically, as an infant being born. You're folded into the mechanisms of the waiting culture. So very rarely do we come nakedly against uh, this thing, which is there all the time. I maintain the reason it happens with, with a drug like DMT is because what drugs really do is dissolve this cultural illusion, they dissolve it so thoroughly that then this other thing, which we've forgotten, can rush in. I've noticed, I may be susceptible to this, but it does get described in the psychological dictionaries of pathology, but I'm susceptible, and I always have been, to, uh, I suppose you would call it a form of hysteria, but it's fear in wilderness places. And uh, if you have this, you know exactly what I mean. If you don't have it, you, it just seems like some kind of pathological weirdness. But it happens when you are alone in wilderness. In other words, when there is nobody there expressing cultural values. 
there's it's a, it's a recognized phenomenon of the human condition. Uh, there's an anthropology book about a tribe in, New, in Sumatra, the Tambunan. And the subtitle of the book is uh, something like The Felt Presence of the Other in the Extra-Community Context. And it talks about how another name for it is Wendigo psychosis. The Wendigo, this is the more spectacular form. This is something that happens in the north woods of Canada, where people who are out in these extreme wildernesses become convinced that they're being stalked by this animal, which is a supernatural animal, the Wendigo. And the Indians know this thing, and they fear it. It's sort of like the Sachamama idea in the Amazon. It's an enormous beast that is so is more feared by the people than anything making it onto the Discovery Channel. You know, they can handle anacondas, they can handle jaguars, but the Wendigo and the Sachamama are beyond. You know, the hunter's skill, the shaman's power, it's something uh, overwhelming. And I think that part of the consequences of scientific materialism and existentialism is to place us into an extracultural environment, and then we become, we are afraid of you know, something strange that comes from the sky that is so intimately hostile that it, you know, wants to look up our rear ends and trade our fetal tissue and, uh, you know, mess with us in, in ways which aren't rational if it's a, you know, a true species come from another star system. I don't think they'd start the contact with the human race by checking us all for hemorrhoids. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't feel right. Uh, so it's something else then, it's something else, and, and it, it is a template of our fears, our fears of being penetrated in a perverse manner, that's basically what's going on there, our fears of, uh, of uh, having our genetic material tampered with, that's what the fetal tissue trading is all about, uh, our fears of having our humanness compromised. I think. I mean, it is, in a sense, a true boogeyman. It's pure, unadulterated fear. The, the aliens of popular culture, the greys, the slant-eyed, uh, all this zoo of things that haunt the tabloids, are very different from the, the DMT creatures, who are much more similar to the earth-centered um, supernatural beings like fairies, elves, gnomes, nixies, sprites, afrits, jinns, tree spirits, uh, who all have a morbid quality. I mean, they all enchant in some way and lead astray. But it's not a planetary invasion, and it's not, and it doesn't have these sexual overtones of sexual anxiety 
that seem to attend this uh, this other thing. Bottom line, I think, it's a wonderful... Being alive is a very interesting situation, but only if you pay attention. You know, otherwise it tends to drift into the background and something else uh, takes its place. Our circumstance is extraordinary. Even measured against the existence of animal life on this planet, our situation is extraordinary. And a mind is a very dynamically chaotic, uh, <clears throat> undefined thing. Still more, you know, the group mind of a species. The nature of information is not understood. The nature of this thing coordinating all this information, which we call the human soul, is not very uh, well understood. The, one of the fallacies that haunts clear thinking is the, is the fallacy of the mundane. There really is no mundane. I mean, when you start deconstructing things, everything uh, be, it turns out mystery stands behind the simplest phenomena, the simplest act. Uh, its casuistry reaches back eons of time, its implications spread out through the universe, and, you know, who is witness to all of this? Simply the unaided human mind trying to struggle forth, forward toward um, a model of itself and a model of the world that it's embedded in, and culture even the culture of science or the culture of mathematics, uh, where it pretends to build firm ground, there is in fact really only uh, quicksand, or at the very best, the kind of bridges that occur in, in uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and the Knights of the Round Table, the kind of bridge that you can ride uh, a horse across before the bridge burns and tumbles into the abyss, but that's all you can move across it. I mean, we're constantly living like that, you know. Think how many of us are dead. Almost all of us are dead at any given time. I don't mean this in a Gurdjieffian or metaphorical sense. I mean that 99.99% of all human beings who ever lived are now dead. The living portion of mankind is a thin sliver uh, compared to all who have come and gone over the past three or four uh, million years. And so the enterprise of understanding... Uh, which seems to rest with the, with the living, uh, inherits a huge momentum from these people who've gone before. I mean, the, the, the dynamic tension or the interest in life, at least for me, is in trying to be a human being to whatever degree that's possible, and then in also trying to understand it all from the outside, trying to be, you know, both fully human and somehow fully extra-environmental, extra-human. 
my mother for God knows what reasons, because it didn't particularly lie in her background or education, uh, named me after a Roman poet. And this Roman poet was a fairly minor character, and he wrote these sort of foppish little social comedies, these plays. But one quote survives from the Roman poet Terence. He said, uh, I am a human being, and therefore nothing human is alien to me. And the, you know, uh, the dilemma of our moment in modernity, I think, in terms of these whisperings from the other, is to decide that uh, nothing human is alien to us and that all aliens have one foot in humanness. Well, why don't we knock off there? That's good enough. Thank you. A meandering diatribe, but, uh, hey. Waiting for other people to show up, and just because I couldn't resist, I've been wanting to talk about this book, and I decided I'd talk about it just a little bit. This book is called On the Edge. It's a novel. It's not available in this country, but you can order it from Amazon.com. Uh, because it's an English novel. It's by a guy named Edward St. Aubin, Teddy, to his friends. And some of you may remember Teddy. He was here about five years ago, very quietly doing research. And this is the product of that research. This is a novel about the world we're sitting in this evening. Uh, and there... The, I thought I would read just a little tiny bit of this because it amused me, not for any other reason. I don't know how many times I've uh, eaten in the Esalen dining room. I don't know how many times many of you have eaten there. And it's always a psychological environment fraught with various possibilities. He's seen this girl earlier in the tubs. Peter didn't have long to wait to see Crystal again. He found her a couple of hours after they had met in the tubs, queuing up for dinner in the lodge. Her short t-shirt left her belly exposed, and he saw the navel ring again, the skin a little inflamed where the ring pierced the lower edge of her navel. Hi, Crystal, he said, picking up a plate and following her down the line of salads. You're staring at my ring, she said. Ah, uh, yes, I'm afraid I was, he said, transferring his gaze to the sliced cucumbers. Don't be afraid, at least not of that, she laughed. When they put this ring in, I had an orgasm right there in the shop. It was wild. The guy said, this is definitely your energy center. Peter was silenced by this information, but recovered in time to say, does it still have that effect on you? Sure, that's why it's there. Gosh, thought Peter, these California girls are amazing. 
He felt his own Englishness and stiffness and inability to decipher Crystal's candor. If an Englishwoman told you about an orgasm the second time you chatted together, you knew that she either wanted sex straight away or that she'd been educated at a convent. Over here, one had no idea what it meant. Peter wanted to ask Crystal to sit with him, but in the communal dining room he felt the usual sense of personal and social meltdown known locally as lodge psychosis. Instead of the sense of community it was designed to promote, the lodge shipwrecked its occupants by presenting them with a series of treacherous whirlpools and rocky dilemmas. Acquaintances imagined they were friends, <laughs> Friends turned into strangers. Seminarians were looked down on by residents and residents exploited by staff. Teachers appeared to be available to students but were suddenly ringed by jealous lovers and competitive sidekicks. Anyone at any time could come and process an issue with you. However turgid or trivial, whether you could remember meeting them before or not, the person to whom you told the secret of your mother's mental illness the night before might not remember your name by lunchtime the next day. The permissiveness that made sex seem pleasingly inevitable made you realize more sharply the internal constraints that prevented you from approaching the objects of desire, but the same permissiveness could not stop the bore you most dreaded from bearing down on you with greedy tactlessness when you were deeply engaged with someone else. Like the place as a whole, the lodge made a partial transcendence of the formalities and hypocrisies of ordinary social life, but at the same time generated the longing for the good manners and the privacy which these formalities, until they became corrupted, were designed to protect. Psychologically bleeding and half-drowned, but still hoping to preserve an air of purpose and self-possession, Peter had often wandered back and forth in the last three days, plate in hand, meeting or avoiding glances he was no longer calm enough to interpret accurately, or being dragged with a fixed smile on his face to a table of people he had no reason to spend time with. Shall we sit together, he murmured almost inaudibly. Sure. And then this I particularly liked. It isn't this room, but it's a room within 150 feet of us that way. And we've all been there, or I assume most of us have been there. In the dimness of the large white room, 30 seminarians formed a rough circle. Sleepy after dinner and relaxed by the introductory nature of the meeting, they slouched, stretched, or le uh, leaned on huge cushions. Some sat in a half-lotus position. Others rested their chins on their clutched knees. Occupying the noonday point on this human clock, Martha Goldenstein and her assistant were languaging up the aims of their workshop. Outside, the sea let go and moved on with a fluency which even Martha must have regarded as an unobtainable ideal. This is a workshop called Letting Go and Moving On, and who Martha Goldenstein is. And there are lots, if you're an Esselenite, you'll recognize lots of people in here, and with all, uh, is it pronounced Romana Clef? Romana Clef? Romana Clef? a novel which thinly disguises 
personalities easily recognized to insiders. This is full of them. Who knows? Some of you might be in here. Anyway, On the Edge by Eddie St. Auburn. I think he'll be invited back. Nancy was vaguely amused. Of course, what Bobo will think, I'm not sure, but uh, everybody has to take their knocks in this world. Um, all right. So there are some people back for more from last night. Um, well, it wasn't explained. It was it was thematically unfolded. We did talk a little bit about aliens last night. Um, I said all the usual things I always say. So I think you've sat through it many a time. Nothing terribly new to add to all of that. Um, there have been developments in the past year. The whole episode with the Martian, second Martian global surveyor, which went into orbit around Mars, and then was used to image the area of Mars called Cydonia, where the face on Mars supposedly resides. And as you probably know, if you care about all of this, the more high-resolution photographs seem to show a more normal landscape. Uh, the rhetoric spawned by the event was anything but normal. Uh, all positions hardened. This seems to be the new way it works, you know. Nothing sets a theory on the path to uh, legitimacy, like being disproved. It's almost a prerequisite. I got one piece of email at the height of that controversy where somebody said, um, well, of course it doesn't look like a face. Do you think the aliens would be fool enough to make it to look like something recognizable? So then I realized that the logic was no longer simply circular. It had acquired a sort of Mobius strip effect where, you know, the fact that it didn't look artificial had now become the strongest argument for its artificial nature, obviously. Um, I'm interested in all of this. I'm more interested in the human personalities behind these things, because in the absence of certain knowledge about, you know, um, whether a given story someone's telling is true or not, uh, it's become much more interesting to me to look at the personalities. And I was pretty confident that this was a good method. I still am confident that it's a good method, that if someone seems completely odd in other ways, then their commitment to a peculiar belief is uh, makes the belief suspect. But we tried to do a trialogue about this with Rupert and Ralph um, in Santa Cruz a few weeks ago, and they both just climbed all over me and said it was a terrible method and that it opened the door to witch hunts and uh, ad hominem arguments and so forth and so on. And then Rupert's knockout argument was most great discoveries have been made by people who couldn't 
stand the kind of scrutiny I was bringing to bear on people. That being nuts is no indication that you're not a genius or on the right track. That only only time can uh, decide. And that, you know, if you turn out to have enunciated a great truth, the fact that you thought your cat was an angel and that you talked to birds isn't going to be held against you. It's also, you know, one of the paradoxes that people don't uh, often don't live by the philosophies they propound. Probably the most spectacular example of that is the English 17th century um, philosopher Jeremy Bentham who is known as the founder of utilitarianism and who proposed this thing he called the utile, which was to be a unit of worth that could be applied to work, art, objects, money. Uh, as a utilitarian, Bentham was a rationalist and an atheist, but when it came time to uh, go to glory, uh, he had himself mummified. And now if you go to the Ashmolean Museum, just on the left, as you go in the front door of the side wing, there in a glass case, hat on head, cane in hand, is Jeremy Bentham uh, in his mummified state, staring from a glass case. So he sort of uh, had his cake and ate it too. So did Lenin, for that matter. I mean, for a dialectical materialist to allow uh, an embalming and a shrine to be built to him is, uh, is fairly peculiar. Uh, let's see. We're still calling for topics, so it's not too late to... Well, no, that isn't one of them. That's been dealt with. That has a check after it. Anything but that. <laughs> uh, someone asked me if uh, if I would talk a little bit about uh, novelty theory, and and uh, and to those of you who've heard it a zillion times, the stress will be on a little bit and on new things. There have been a couple of new developments in the past year. Um, let's see. Well, for one thing, I mean, you know, revolutions in physics now come so quickly that we hardly have time to adjust to one before there's another. But there was a very startling uh, I guess I can't call it a revolution because not everybody has converted to the new truth, but there was an interesting development in physics over the past year, which is uh, a number of very precise measurements were taken of nearby star clusters and their rates of velocity and dispersion. And it, it was discovered that... Um, uh, there seems to be some kind of previously not only undetected but unsuspected force in the universe 
that was in, described in the popular press as an anti-gravitational force. What it is, is that, uh, you know, for the past 50 years or so, a question in astrophysics has been, is the universe expanding infinitely? Or is it going to reach a point of maximum gravitational expansion and then uh, gravitational expansion will reverse and it will fall back upon itself so that it will reach a maximum radius and then begin to fall back on itself. Well, these new measurements seem to indicate that uh, once you subtract all the known physical forces in the universe, these, uh, these star clusters are, are, there is a residuum of unexplained expansive velocity. In other words, the answer to the question, will the universe uh, eventually cease expanding and fall back on itself? The answer now seems to be no, it never will. This, now, this may seem very technical and so forth, but it actually addresses some fairly basic questions. It means that uh, if true, and the data is being second-checked and third-checked now, but if true, it means that uh, the universe is not at its largest scale cyclical. It isn't like a great breathing creature that expands outward millions, billions of years, then collapses inward, then expands again. It seems to be a one-shot event that emerges from a singularity and spreads out forever. Well, I don't know how long forever is, but it's certainly a lot longer than 12 billion years, which is the current age of the universe, 12 to 15 billion years. So this seems to indicate that we're, in some sense, near the beginning of the life of the universe, and that whatever is going to happen in this universe, it's never going to be erased by cosmic backsliding. We talked a couple of nights ago, or maybe it was last night, about the second law of thermodynamics, which leads to entropy, heat death, breakdown of all structure, and dissipation of order. Um, apparently, this universe will end like that, not in a recoalescence into a primal mass and a re-explosion and re um, you know, unfolding of its topology. So, in a sense, that's both a death sentence on order and structure and morphology in the universe, or perhaps not. Perhaps the death sentence was the belief that a time would come when the galaxies would stop moving apart and would begin to move inward. And, of course, in a situation like that, gas pressure and uh, radiation and everything eventually would reach very critical levels and, and structure would melt down into an enormous black hole. So it, in a sense it clears the deck 
of this possibility that the universe will fall back upon itself into a simpler state. It means it either goes forward infinitely into entropy, or it goes forward infinitely into the uh, overwhelming of entropy by this strange non-equilibrium phenomenon that we call organic life and at its higher expression, mind. What does all this have to do with novelty theory? Well, basically it keeps novelty theory alive. In fact, it's a tremendous argument for it because novelty theory has always said as the universe ages, it becomes more and more complicated, period. It doesn't say as the universe ages it becomes more and more complicated up unto a certain point and then the process reverses as it falls back into a state of, uh, of compression. This, this idea that the... It, it's interesting how this discovery took place. Discoveries take place in a number of ways. Usually in science people are looking for something. And a theory doesn't quite parse. There's a missing link. There's a, a hidden dimension and people go looking for the answers and then they either find them and don't find them. In this case, and some of the great and truly, uh, you know, society reconstructing ideas have come this way. In this case, the results were completely unexpected and nobody was looking for them. These measurements carried out on these star clusters were essentially to confirm existing theory. And when the data came back that these things were expanding, uh, it was unexpected. No theory demanded it. And yet, you know, it appears to be incontrovertibly true. Einstein, in the 30s, played around with this idea and he produced at one point in his career what he called the, co the cosmological constant, which was an expansion factor built into the universe at the, at the axiomatic level. In other words, it was just given by God. It did not proceed from logical declension. And uh, he fiddled around with this for five or six years, eventually abandoned it, described it as the biggest waste of time of his entire life, the biggest technical mistake he had ever been involved with. It now appears he was spot on. The com cosmological constant is real, it is a constant, the value is close to what he calculated it to be, and it gives us a universe which, once born, expands forever. So, uh, that was a big support for novelty theory. Why did Einstein abandon that? It was felt that it was not necessary. In other words, it was felt that and it hypothesizes a force, you see, a force that in science fiction terms we would have to describe as anti-gravity. Under the influence of gravity, everything should eventually reach its gravitational limit. Under the attraction of everything else, it should then begin to fall backward. But this 
Einstein's constant puts enough of an oomph into the into the mix that the gravitational force is not sufficient to overcome it and the universe will just continue to fly in all directions outward from its origin point forever so in a way though you probably didn't feel the speed bump this little series of discoveries in physics last year pretty much if if it holds up if confirmed settles a question that people have pondered for as long as people have been staring into campfires which is is the universe cyclical as the hindu cosmologies tend to believe always larger and larger cycles or is it a one shot deal and western philosophy has always leaned toward the idea that while there may be cycles within cycles that ultimately there is a a large a cycle so large that it doesn't repeat ultimately in this model the universe is what's called a damped oscillation and i think you can imagine what that is a damped oscillation is when you pluck a string on a cello and then listen very carefully it actually dies away i mean it 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 fades but eventually it is truly gone that's a damped oscillation so that's what the physics seems to have secured that this is the kind of universe we're in it raises ethical i suppose and philosophical questions in the sense that it means where we stand tonight no one has ever been before there aren't uh, there aren't uh, worlds which precede and follow history like bubbles in a glass of beer this is it it raises the stakes being becomes more important the unique moment becomes truly unique um it's sort of in line with that related to the same data set if you want which is the very large scale physical universe uh there was another development not exactly development but sort of the debate sharpened and clarified and that is as you probably know if you worry about astrophysics and the issues it grapples with um there is this big problem probably the biggest unsolved problem in astrophysical modeling is this question of of what is called a dark matter uh what this is about is uh the universe behaves as though there's about 97% more of it than we can see in other words uh we look out into the starry universe and we see quasars and pulsars and stars and star clusters and galaxies and brown dwarfs and gas clouds and all these things but when you add it all together it's only 3% of what should be there uh for the universe to hang together the way that it does and this problem has been physicists have been aware of this problem for about 30 years they call it the dark matter problem because they assume that 
that the cohesiveness of the universe could only be because there are large amounts of unobserved matter that are contributing to the gravitational field of the large-scale cosmos. And then the question becomes, well, where is this dark matter? I mean, we build better and better telescopes. We look in more and more rarefied sections of the electromagnetic spectrum. But we don't see, the dark matter doesn't swim into view. Uh, one group wants to, is looking for these things called machos, which are massive payload something objects. Anyway, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but the concept is some big things that we've overlooked. The equivalent of brown dwarfs, which are larger than stars, larger than planets, and saying there must be billions of these things in the universe that we just don't see. The other school of astrophysics says, no, no, it's wrong to look for this in these massive uh, objects. It's that the neutrino must have mass. Now, the neutrino is an interesting creature. It, it's one of these counterintuitive concepts which science depends on. In a single cubic centimeter of any amount of space or time, something like uh, 10 high 14 neutrinos per second are, are, are moving through a cubic centimeter of space. How much is that? Well, 10 high 9 is a billion. So 10 high 14 is, uh, what, 100, 1,000 trillion neutrinos per second penetrating every cubic centimeter of space. And these things are hellishly difficult to detect. Uh, a neutrino can pass through the Earth and never encounter anything. The Earth is basically transparent to neutrinos. So trying to, to picture these things, of which there are more of them than anything else in the universe. So obviously, if neutrinos had mass, even if it was a very slight amount of mass, there are so many of them that you could redo the arithmetic of reality and come up with a hell of a lot of previously un, uh, undetected mass. Uh, recently, uh, an experiment which has been long-running in Japan, and... Uh, and I forget where the other detector is, France or something like that. Anyway, in the bottom of these very deep mines, they uh, build these tanks with tens of thousands of gallons of what is essentially cleaning fluid in them. And they, be and they believe that, uh, you know, one in something like 10 high 20 neutrinos will actually, one in 10 high 20, will actually collide with an atom of this solvent liquid and it produces a flash of blue light called Cherenkov radiation. This we don't have to understand, or at least I've managed to live without understanding what it is. Uh, but you can build a photo detector and detect these things. Well, there was a supernova burst 
and uh, in the past year, and they detected the neutrino flux rose on the Japanese detector, and something like an eighth of a second later, the French detector also detected this wave of large numbers of neutrinos moving through the Earth. And for the first time, they were able to calculate the mass of the neutrinos. mass. But not enough to account for the dark matter that seems to be missing. Well, so what does all this have to do with novelty theory? Well, simply this. Um, maybe there is no missing mass. Maybe there is no dark matter. Maybe what's missing is a law or two. That wouldn't be a more elegant solution. And what I've always said about novelty theory, or one of its ideas that it kicks out quite naturally, is uh, the idea that once something complicated exists, it has a kind of inertia for existence. You know, I've said once novelty is established, nature tenaciously maintains it. It doesn't easily give up and go back to a simpler state. So let's imagine now that we're looking at an enormous spiral galaxy comparable to M31 in Andromeda. And, you're asked, and the question you're asking yourself is, why, what keeps it together? You know, a hundred billion stars circling around a black hole. What keeps these stars from flinging themselves off into the ex-great intergalactic night? Why does the thing hang together? Well, the orthodox answer is there must be missing matter that we can't see that is contributing and raising the amount of gravity in the system, and that's why it holds together. But I say no, it holds together simply because it is together. In other words, it has attained a dynamic status as an entity. Its sheer wish to maintain itself as it is is sufficient to overcome the forces which are trying to fling it apart. What's interesting about this is if you, you could actually begin, if you believed this and you were a professional astrophysicist, you could actually begin to calculate your way toward a mathematical value for the universal constancy of the novelty factor. Uh, what you would do is you would calculate the visible mass of a galaxy, calculate the amount of force necessary to fling it apart, subtract one from the other, and what you have left over is apparently this hidden tendency to cohesiveness that's holding the thing together. Theoretically, you could do this on a human being, a human society, a population of atoms, a molecule, but of course these things are very, very difficult to separate from their background, from their background. With a spiral galaxy suspended in intergalactic space, you can actually make a fairly accurate estimate of how much mass you're looking at, at what its rotation speed is, 
at what the factors are, the tidal factors, trying to tear it apart, and how great its attraction for itself would have to be to overcome that. So that was... Um, See, if novelty theory is true, then on large scales it would have to operate that way. We've always talked about it on tiny scales, either the scale of human history, a few tens of thousands of years, or on much smaller scales, atomic, molecular, and, and uh, systems like that. But at the, at the cosmic scale, you actually can begin to get a feeling for the mathematics of it. So those were the two areas uh, this in the past year that, on the cosmic scale, have contributed to strengthening novelty theory. Uh, the discovery of this apparently universally deep repulsive force that is causing the universe to expand forever, to never retrace its steps. And then paradoxically, this strange force that favors the coherency of large structures and doesn't allow them to come apart, even when the gravity necessary to hold them together uh, is absent. Uh, let's see. In. How does fractal and Mendelbrot stuff fit in? Have you have you given that? So I, how how that might have uh, a relevance to all that? Well, it's relevant in the sense that um, novelty theory is a wave mechanical view of nature that assumes that the basic pattern of cohesion and change is repeated at many, many scales. That's what a fractal is. It's a self-similar curve. You all understand this, right? It's simply um, uh, it's, a, it's a curve made of smaller versions of itself. And every level of the curve is made of versions of itself at different scales. The most obvious example to look at in your mind is a circle. Think of a circle. As you zero in on a portion of the circle, it has slight curvature. While as you zero in on a portion of it, one one hundredth the size of the first portion, it still has slight curvature. At all scales, the curve is self-similar. A circle is the simplest of all fractals. It's also the most boring. I mean, not for other reasons, but but uh, fractals, until the advent of computers, were very difficult to calculate. They were only called fractals since the 1970s. Before that, they were called pathological curves. And the reason they were called... Um, <laughs> The reason they were called pathological was because it was hellaciously difficult to calculate them. You, literally, it would make you lose your mind. I remember when I was a kid, I knew about these things, and I knew the method for making them. I mean, the method is very simple. Make, draw a shape on a piece of paper. It could be an L. Now replace, you know how an L is... Oh, I drew it backward, but here's an L. 
now replace the downswoop of the L and the uh, horizontal swoop of the L. Replace each one with an L. And you get a thing which looks like this. You can follow that, right? We'll now replace each one of those straight segments with an L. Now you have reached what is called the second fractal stage of this particular figure. Now replace each of those straight segments with an L. And, but what you discover is by the time you get to stage 4, 5, or 6, by the drawing on a piece of paper method, the thing has become hellaciously complicated. And, uh, and higher stages of the fractal can't be calculated at all. It has too many strokes in it, if you want to put it that way. But in a computer, this is the kind of stuff computers eat for breakfast. And you can produce fractals up to the 12th level of iteration. And what's strange is that when you do this, it's very hard to predict how the fractal is going to look. You know, you start out with something just like the L, re with being replaced by Ls. But by the time you get to the eighth or ninth level of iteration, the thing looks like <clears throat> exquisitely designed Lewis Comfort Tiffany jewelry or something like that. It's uh, very, very hard to uh, predict. Well, this is how nature builds, uh, apparently, at every level. Uh, an example would be, you know, the vein nation on the surface of your liver and the delta of the Nile from an altitude of 200 miles do not uh, look different at all. They obviously are, are built and created by the same forces, forces which divide fluid dynamics into finer and finer flow. This is, this is probably the most powerful insight into the mathematical structure of nature of the last thousand years, which is saying something when you consider that the calculus is a contender. Uh, but uh, all of nature yields to this insight. You know, one of the things that they talk about... Uh, well, like the, the question, what is the length of the coastline of England? This seems like a fairly straightforward question until you actually begin to measure the coastline of England. And you discover that unless you make certain arbitrary assumptions, the coastline of England is infinite. You know, are we going to measure with a stiff measuring rod that is a mile long? or a foot long, or an inch long, or a millimeter long. The shorter our measuring stick, the, lo the longer the coast of England becomes. And the, st and the question, what is the length of the coast of England, is a meaningless question. Choose a number. That's your answer. Uh, you can always reason backward to assumptions that would give you that answer. Uh, fractals are very real in that they are not only spatially happening, they are temporally happening. Uh, 
before I go to temporal happenings, an example of spatial distribution of fractals is uh, dust bunnies. You know, dust bunnies are those weird agglomerations of hair and crud that live under beds and in the backs of cupboards. Well, they come in all sizes. They come from too small to see up to occasionally Moby Dick-sized dust bunnies uh, <laughs> where cleaning has not gone on with sufficient diligence. Uh, also, the temporal processes are fractal. Uh, I, I, my most personal encounter with the power of fractals in nature. I've told this story, but I guess it doesn't hurt to tell it again. I, I was with a group of people in a workshop many years ago, and we were on a beach down north of Vandenberg, a very large beach. It's called Point Sal. 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 I don't know if you can still get in there, but it's beautiful. There's all kinds of sea life and... Uh, uh, undisturbed beach. So I was on this beach and I was walking and I was in an altered state such that I was paying very close attention to what was going on around me. And after walking for a while on this absolutely white beach, I came up on a little black rock, just a flat rock about that big. And I, uh, I noticed it because there was very little to notice on this beach and I was sort of shelling in a half-hearted way at the time. So I noticed this black rock and then I kept walking and uh, and I came after quite a while, after five minutes of walking or so, I came to an identical black rock just like the first one. And I thought, though, that's interesting, strange. And then I had, as you sometimes do in altered states, I had an idea which burst on me, fully formed. I stopped walking along the beach, stopped at the second black rock, turned around, and I walked back to the first black rock, and I counted my steps. It was like 720 steps. And then I kept walking south on the beach. And I began the count again from zero. And it's 723 steps. There was a third black rock lying on the beach. Well, rather than yield to the idea that the aliens were directing me or that this was a revelation of God's intent for man, I realized, no, it's nothing like that. What it is is this, this enormous bay and this perfect beach are actually functioning as a computational engine of some sort, solving a fractal equation, a dynamic equation, that dictates the placement of black rocks on this beach. And I'm sure had I walked south another 720 to 30 feet, there would have been yet another black rock. Well, unless you're loaded, this kind of thing will completely escape you 99.9% .9 of, uh, of the time. 
But that doesn't mean it's not going on. It is. It is going on. You know, we think of computers as artificial things uh, under the control of human operators and so forth. But in fact, all nature computes. All nature computes. I remember once being, again, strangely enough, you have to sort of slow down and observe with psychedelics or you miss these things. But I discovered something almost anybody can observe if they will but take the time. And that is after a rain, if you go into a place where there are dense bushes or leaves, and that every drop of water that comes down at the end of a leaf, like on the point of a maple leaf, if there's a flat surface behind that drop of water and you position yourself very carefully, the light passing through the drop of water will create a fisheye lens image of the entire scene around you. No eyes are involved, no animals are involved. This is just simply a drop of water in the presence of light creates a 360-degree fisheye lens image of the world around it. At, until I saw that, I couldn't understand how in the world animal eyes ever evolved. Because you imagine that it's mechanically complicated. You say, how can an animal see something? It must involve very complicated mechanisms in chemistry. No, just hang a drop of water at the end of a toothpick and position a piece of typing paper behind it and then carefully search for the right perspective and eventually uh, you know, this little image of the world emerges. It's almost as though the world wants to warp itself into a total image of itself. It, it has within itself this, uh, this capacity to image itself uh, 100%. That was the answer to the question about fractals. It sidetracked me from the other thing I wanted to mention. Not that that's a bad thing. But the other thing I did want to mention was... Um, and this isn't an argument for the truth of novelty theory per se. It's an argument for the fact that things are more novel than we suspect and that novelty can come from unexpected directions. And that is this data that came out, I believe it was last September, where uh, this fellow Anton Zellinger and his group in Vienna at the uh, Quantum Center for Quantum Encryption uh, teleported a photon a distance of about 15 feet in a laboratory. Well, now, this is a technology which I would have, if you'd offered me a bet, I would have said is impossible on any scale, 10 years, a 1,000 years. I mean, this is a really counterintuitive technology. The photon was destroyed at its, at its origin point. It did not travel between the two points. It was destroyed at point A, and it instantly appeared at point B. Reus instantly notice, not at the speed of light, but instantly. 
And the mathematics which allowed this to be done place no upper limit on on uh, the structures which will behave this way. In other words, it was done with a photon because a photon is very light, very easy to move around. You don't have to pump much energy into a photon to get it to do what you want. But the experiment did not preclude doing it with an electron or a molecule or uh, 10 high 16 molecules for that matter. In other words, this seemed to be a technology where you st it, it, it's Star Trek stuff. You know, you step onto a platform, every atom in your body is ripped asunder, and you instantly appear thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of miles from where you started. And you have not made the trip. Uh, your new body has been in, assembled instantaneously out of locally available matter at the arrival point. And the people who were doing these experiments said they felt uh, that scaling up this technology and doing it with, you know, macrophysical objects was five to six years away. This is one of these things where I assume they'll hit speed bumps along the way. But imagine the impact of a technology like that on our image of ourselves. I mean, imagine if several times a day your body was blown completely to smithereens and reassembled out of the air you breathe some hundreds or thousands of miles away from where you are. Uh, I mean, just the what this would do to our notion of ourselves and, of course, it impinges on questions like, is there a soul? And if there is, you know, can it withstand that process? And if so, how? You know, in Islamic teachings, they say the, the human soul can move no faster than a horse's gallop. This is why, uh, this is an explanation for jet lag. You know, you fly to Paris, your soul is moving along at about 35 miles an hour. It takes it several days to catch up with the transported body, and then you sort of feel reunited with yourself and whole uh, again. Let's see if I can think of anything else along those lines. That was pretty startling stuff. Uh, the real technologies which shape the world are somewhat unexpected, I think. I mean, like, for instance, if you read future fantasizing of the year 1800, there is no hint. Uh, it's a mechanical, it's a mechanical fantasy. There is no hint that within 50 years telegraph lines will be strung and that within a hundred years radio and telephones and moving pictures all of that comes basically out of the occult discoveries of the 19th century that there were such things as electromagnetic fields 
that these electromagnetic fields were not mere objects of theory, but that, you know, they could carry symphonic music and human speech and pictures around to like that, like that. <laughs> An electromagnetic intrusion from, from, uh, Well, these things are unruly. Anyway, that was... Uh, I wanted to mention all that because novelty theory once sort of had the feel to itself. Now the world is getting so crazy that novelty theory has to sh elbow and shove itself to the front of any discussion to even be heard anymore. Of course, it predicted this. It predicted that it would, not that it would spawn, but that history would provide it with an atmosphere of competitive ideas. And, you know, now there's an endless number of uh, positions which predict enormous and imminent change which novelty theory does as well. Novelty theory explains why. These other theories tend either to say that, I don't know, it's God's will or it's built into the dynamics of the planet or something like that. Um, for a long time we've had people like Edgar Cayce who were predicting earth changes. Indeed, the entire substructure of Western religion is built on apocalyptic thinking. I mean, the essential promise of Western religion is that God will enter history. This is an extraordinary claim. In Hindu or Buddhist terms, you can barely even articulate this idea. I mean, what does it mean God will enter history? Well, first it means that History is somehow a message sent from God that, you know, human lives, armies, empires, and dynastic families are the hieroglyphs upon which God writes uh, the message of, of his, her, its revelation in time. That's not a Hindu or a Buddhist idea at all, still less the idea that God created history and will redeem us from it at a certain point. All this is worth talking about because as we approach the millennium, it's one of those dwell points where the enthusiasts of this theory think it would be a mighty uh, symmetrical and aesthetically pleasing moment for God to just lift the veil and enter history. Uh, the last time we had to put up with this was in the year 1000, but it was very diffuse. I mean, even though it was diffuse, the year 1000 had an enormous impact on the Western psyche, but not like the year 2000 will happen. In around the year 1000, only extremely educated and sophisticated people knew that it was 1000. 
you know, well, the people didn't do dates the way we do. For instance, if you were a peasant in some feudal situation, usually your notion of time was uh, this is the fifth year of the second decade of Prince Louis's reign. That's how time was delineated. Uh, of course, the the international intelligentsia knew that the year 1000 was approaching. In fact, there was there is a description of the midnight mass of December 31st, 999, where... Uh, uh, I think it was actually, I don't know why it was in, wasn't in Rome, but it was in Venice. The Pope was in Venice. And, uh, and at midnight, they tolled the bells. And as the last gong sounded out, the twelfth strike of the bell, you know, there was this long moment it's what in Norse mythology is called the Gidneago Gap. It's that moment where one world age ends and another begins, and you reach across the gap, and you don't know if anything is there or not. Well, then, uh, nothing, you know. There was no trump of judgment. There was no chariot descending from the sky. And time, which had stopped, in a sense picked up and began rolling again, it will be much more dramatic uh, for us because it will be a worldwide event attended by all kinds of hysteria over the stability of the internet and so forth and so on. And even though, you know, the Chinese, the Jews, the Muslims, and all kinds of other people are using different calendars, the, the Gregorian calendar is an enormous framing metaphor for most people's uh, most people's lives well that's an interesting question uh, at first glance it appears arbitrary you know um, up until the 1500s western civilization was ruled by what's called the julian calendar had been established by julius caesar but the Julian calendar used a day count of 365 and one quarter days. That's only an approximation. Uh, one quarter isn't quite, uh, it's slightly more than a quarter. Well, run it for a thousand years and you pick up 15 days of error. And the astronomers of the church were aware of this uh, accumulating error in the calendar. And so Pope Gregory the Great, hence the Gregorian calendar, Pope Gregory the Great declared in 1583 that in Catholic countries, because the Reformation had already, you know, established Protestantism in, across northern Germany and in other places, but that in Catholic countries, that in December of 1583, the 5th of December would be followed by the 15th. In other words, they destroyed 10 days. And this created, for a couple of centuries, a complete mess. 
because countries, some countries didn't, like England, didn't make the correction until the 1780s because they were so adamantly anti-Catholic. So in diplomatic correspondence and this kind of thing, and you can imagine insurance policies, investment instruments, you had to make sure that everybody was on the same uh, calendar. And one by one, the Protestant countries converted to the Gregorian correction because the logic of it was pretty incontrovertible. If you stuck with the Julian Day count, then uh, the great, uh, for instance, the great church holidays were becoming twisted out of their place. For example, Easter. Easter is, the formula for Easter is, Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Well, if, the, if, if your calendar is out of kilter, then pretty soon the Easter date is too late in the year to make any sense. And so these calendrical corrections were needed. Uh, the Mayan calendar is uh, a calendar leaving aside all the woo-woo stuff about it. It's a calendar which is based on the largest cycle human beings have ever observed on this planet. The largest cycle that affects this planet is what's called the precession of the equinoxes. It was discovered by, um, is it Archimedes? Anyway, it was discovered in the second century before Christ in the West. I see that Kim Malville's group excavating in the southern Sudan this year discovered a Stonehenge-like ruin. Not that Stonehenge-like, but I mean a kind of astronomical observatory and the computer reconstruction of this thing seems to indicate that it was actually tracking the precession. The Maya must have picked up, not the Maya, but the proto-Maya, the Olmec, must have picked up on this same thing around the same time the Greeks were figuring it out because the Mayan calendar is designed so that it returns every 26,000 years to a very easily defined starting point. That starting point is a place in the Milky Way. You know, if you stand in, in the look at the late summer sky or from a high hill with the Milky Way spread out all in front of you, approximately at the, at the zenith, there is a dark lane of dust which intrudes across the bright band of the Milky Way. That, that place, astrophysicists say, is the center of the Milky Way. Now, the galaxy was not even defined as an entity for astrophysics except in, within the confines of the 20th century. But for reasons which you can call coincidence or synchronicity or miracle or primitive super science, uh, the Maya 
were fixated on precisely this place in the sky. The, to, the, to the degree they were fixated on this spot, they called it Shibalba, the path to the underworld. They believed that the souls of the dead made a journey out into the stars and that this black slash across the face of the galaxy was a channel that the souls followed out to some transmundane realm a la Gnostic speculation. You know, the idea that beyond the machinery of cosmic fate is the higher and hidden true God and that after death the light trapped in the soul is somehow sent there. So their calendar, which is a 26,000 year cycle, ends on December 21st, 2012 in our calendar. That's a winter solstice, obviously, but it's a very special winter solstice. It's a winter solstice who's in, during which the heliacal rising of the sun is smack on this galactic set of crosshairs. In other words, the plane of the ecliptic along which the planets and the zodiacal signs are arrayed is moving over millennia into alignment with this completely independent other crosshair, which is the galactic plane. Once every 13,000 years, they align themselves uh, at the winter solstice and the summer solstice. So 13,000 years ago, at the winter solstice, the heliacal rising of the winter solstice occurred in this same place. It takes a cycle of 26,000 years for it to return to the winter solstice point, as will happen in 2012 AD. Well, if we then take as uh, given that the calendrical cycle that is being tracked by these ancient people is this 26,000 year cycle, uh, then the year 2000 in our calendar, being only 12 years off, is simply not quite as uh, deadly accurate as the Mayan, but the difference of 12 years over 26,000 is 0.0005%. So you could even argue that our own calendar, founded by Caesars and corrected by popes, in other words, a fairly rational undertaking, a Jungian would argue that it just nevertheless danced to the invisible fiddle of the unconscious mind that wanted to make the the solsticeal coincidence with the with the heliacal rising of the galaxy, the end point. And then people say, well, why, why? Is there a deeper reason than simply that it's the most convenient point in the sky to start and stop your cosmic cycle? And that's brought a flurry of New Age speculation that some kind of energy can only be let in 
at these moments when the so-called gates stand open, which would be, you know, if you include the equinoctial points, so you have two solstice points, two equinoctial points, then every 6,500 years, one of these doorways opens and then it closes for another 6,500 years. If you only think the winter solstice is what matters, then the gate only opens once every roughly 26,000 years. And it, these are interesting time scales in the sense that, you know, if we f go back 6,500 years, that's 4,500 BC. That's older than the pyramids unless you use squirrely dating, which then this rap doesn't work. The problem with squirrely dating is you have to know what you're trying to preserve. With the dates as given by ordinary archaeology, uh, it means that all of what we call human history has arisen in the last 6,500 years. I mean, there's very little before that, and certainly little we can relate to in terms of our religious heritages, our political systems, our uh, approach to jurisprudence and all that. Nothing is older than Old Kingdom Egypt. And Old Kingdom Egypt is uh, three, four, five thousand years old. So you've got 1,500 years of wiggle room even on that scale. If you go back 26,000 years, you know, this planet is locked in ice. Uh, Europe is buried under miles of ice. Uh, the glaciers have reached as far south as Baalbek in Lebanon. The Himalayas are points of rock sticking out of an ocean of ice 10,000 feet thick. Uh, everything, 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 everything has happened in the last, to 26,000 years except for some, you know, cave painting and some rock chipping, but all, all ceramic, all weaving, all, uh, all traces of writing, all traces of agriculture, all traces of astronomical knowledge, anything we can call shamanism, it all is locked within the confines of the last... Uh, 26,000 years. It'll be very interesting to see how we ride through all this as a rational society. Of course, the auguries are not good, granted that this thing called the Y to K problem, which could hardly be more mundane. I mean, this is basically a stale error in Fortran, seems to have sent our entire civilization into a tizzy of speculation, preparation, uncertainty. And that's what the rationalists are saying. The guys with pen protectors in their pockets, they worry about that apocalypse. Once you move deeper into, you know, unanchored speculation and that, then you just have everything going. You've got your aliens, you've got your earth changes, you've got the Antarctic ice caps melting, you've got global warming, uh, asteroid impact, always a favorite, always been a favorite of mine. Um, and I, 
you know, it's a real test of our Jungian, of, of Jungian theory. In other words, here we have practically every man, woman, and child with an intimation of the apocalypse, and yet reason would dictate that nothing terribly different from what happened last week or the week before will intrude to shake us up. Uh, can, a, can an expectation become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Um, we shall find out. It's interesting that right before we go over this speed bump, we decommission all our nuclear arsenals and delivery systems. We were in a much better position to create an apocalypse ourselves 10 years ago. So it's probably a good thing that our political systems have slightly toned down uh, their rhetoric. Even if there were no calendrical countdown occurring, I think from the discussions of technology in these groups, you can see that with or without the millennial countdown, we have an internal clock, an internal agenda of technical uh, accomplishments that are transforming our, our psyches and our societies and our politics and our gender relations and everything else faster than anything else. I mean, it isn't earth changes that's making us over. It's technology that's making us over. It isn't even politics. Uh, you know, the major forms of political discourse have been on display for a hundred years. Marxism, fascism, democratic consumerism, so forth and so on. Where the change is, is in the domain of technology, which we self-generate self all of that. Our medical, uh, you know, our, the way we, well, projects like the Human Genome Project and uh, technologies like cloning and uh, technologies that are brought to bear on problems of infertility or uh, stuff like this are, are redefining what it is to be human more rapidly than most people realize because most people are pretty much at home in their body. You know, but if you aren't at home in your body, all kinds of options beckon. You know, you can change your gender. You can uh, augment yourself through prosthesis, silicon implants, all kinds of things. And and this is uh, we're clearly at the beginning of all of this. And all kinds of things that can be done for noble purposes so that infertile couples can have children, so that people in terrible accidents and victims of burning and things like this can survive. The technologies which make those things possible also make possible all kinds of nightmarish and peculiar uh, possibilities. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. It was interesting to hear how concerned Terence was in 1998 about the upcoming Y2K issue that was then looming on the horizon. 
Doesn't that make you wonder how he would feel today about the fact that there is a psychotic toddler who now has his tiny little fingers on the nuclear button? We most certainly live in strange times. But before I forget to tell you, if you want to listen to that trialogue that Terrence mentioned, where Rupert and Ralph gave him a hard time, you can hear it in my podcast number 228 that I posted way back on May 15th in 2010. And that's the first of three podcasts featuring that June 6th, 1998 trialogue in Santa Cruz. And if I remember correctly, there were a few points in that conversation (laughs) where Terrence was backed into a corner by his friends. Uh, In fact, I think I'm going to go back and listen to that series myself. And uh, since today's talk went a bit long, I'm going to uh, get out of here and let you get back to the adventure of your own life. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.